Section 9 of Lives of Girls Who Became Famous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of Girls Who Became Famous by Sarah K. Bolton. Section 9 Harriet G. Hosmer. Some years ago, in an art store in Boston, a crowd of persons stood gazing intently upon a famous piece of statuary. The red curtains were drawn aside, and the white marble seemed almost to speak. A group of girls stood together, and looked on in rapt admiration. One of them said, Just to think that a woman did it. It makes me proud and glad, said another. Who is Harriet Hosmer? said a third. I wish I knew about her. And then one of us, who had stolen all the hours she could get from school life, to read art books from the Hartford Anthenaeum, and kept crude statues, made by herself from chalk and plaster, secreted in her room, told all she had read about the brilliant author of Zenobia. The statue was seven feet high, queenly in pose and face, yet delicate and beautiful, with the thoughts which genius had wrought in it. The left arm supported the elegant drapery, while the right hung listlessly by her side, both wrists chained. The captive of the Emperor Aurelian. Since that time I have looked upon other masterpieces in all the great galleries of Europe, but perhaps none have ever made a stronger impression upon me than Zenobia in those early years. And who was the artist whom we girls were so proud of? Born in Waterton, Massachusetts, October 9, 1830, Harriet Hosmer came into the welcome home of a leading physician and a delicate mother, who soon died of consumption. Dr. Hosmer had also buried his only child besides Harriet, with the same disease, and he determined that this girl should live in sunshine and air, that he might save her if possible. He used to say, there is a whole lifetime for the education of the mind, but the body develops in a few years, and during that time, nothing should be allowed to interfere with its free and healthy growth. As soon as the child was large enough, she was given a pet dog, which she decked with ribbons and bells. Then, as the Charles River flowed past their house, a boat was provided, and she was allowed to row at will. A Venetian gondola was also built for her, with silver prow and velvet cushions. Too much spoiling, too much spoiling, said some of the neighbors, but Dr. Hosmer knew that he was keeping his little daughter on the earth instead of heaven. A gun was now purchased, and the girl became an admirable marksman. Her room was a perfect museum. Here were birds, bats, beetles, snakes, and toads, some dissected, some preserved in spirits, and others stuffed, all gathered and prepared by her own hands. Now she made an inkstand from the egg of a seagull and the body of a kingfisher. Now she climbed to the top of a tree and brought down a crow's nest. She could walk miles upon miles with no fatigue. She grew up like a boy, which is another way of saying that she grew up healthy and strong physically. Probably polite society was shocked at Dr. Hosmer's methods. Would that there were many such fathers and mothers, that we might have a vigorous race of women, and consequently, a vigorous race of men. When Harriet tired of books, 
for she was an eager reader. She found delight in the clay pit in the garden, where she molded horses and dogs to her heart's content. Unused to restraint, she did not like the first school at which she was placed. The principal, the brother-in-law of Nathaniel Hawthorne, writing to her father that he could do nothing with her. She was then taken to Mrs. Sedgwick, who kept a famous school at Lenox, Berkshire County. She received Happy Hattie, as she was called, with the remark, I have a reputation for training wild colts, and I will try this one. The wise woman succeeded. She won Harriet's confidence, not by the ten thousand times repeated don't, which so many children hear in home and school, till life seems a prison pen. She let her run wild, guiding her all the time with so much tact, that the girl scarcely knew she was guided at all. Blessed tact! How many thousands of young people are ruined for lack of it? She remained here three years. Mrs. Sedgwick says, She was the most difficult pupil to manage I ever had, but I think I never had one in whom I took so deep an interest, and whom I learned to love so well. About this time, not being quite as well as usual, Dr. Hosmer engaged a physician of large practice to visit his daughter. The busy man could not be regular, which sadly interfered with Harriet's boating and driving. Complaining one day that it spoiled her pleasure, he said, If I am alive, I will be here, naming the day and the hour. Then if you are not here, I am to conclude that you are dead, was the reply. As he did not come, Harriet drove to the newspaper offices in Boston that afternoon, and the next morning the community was startled to read of Dr. Blank's sudden death. Friends hastened to the house, and messages of condolence came pouring in. It is probable that he was more punctual after this. On Harriet's return from Lenox, she began to take lessons in drawing, modeling, and anatomical studies in Boston, frequently walking from home and back a distance of fourteen miles. Feeling the need of a thorough course in anatomy, she applied to Boston Medical School for admittance, and was refused because of her sex. The Medical College of St. Louis proved itself broader, glad to encourage talent wherever found, and received her. Professor McDowell, under whom the artist Powers and Clevenger studied anatomy, spared no pains to give her every advantage, while the students were uniformly courteous. I remember him, says Miss Hosmer, with great affection and gratitude, as being a most thorough and patient teacher, as well as at all times a good and kind friend. In testimony of her appreciation, she cut, from a bust of Professor McDowell by Clevenger, a life-size medallion in marble, now treasured in the College Museum. While in St. Louis, she made her home with the family of Wayman Crow, Esquire, whose daughter had been her companion at Lenox. This gentleman proved himself a constant and encouraging friend, ordering her first statue from Rome, and helping in a thousand ways a girl who had chosen for herself an unusual work in life. After completing her studies, she made a trip to New Orleans, and then north to the Falls of St. Anthony, smoking the pipe of peace, with the chief of the Dakota Indians, exploring lead mines in Dubuque, and scaling a high mountain that was soon after named for her. Did the wealthy girl go alone on these journeys? Yes. As a rule, no harm comes to a young woman who conducts herself with becoming reserved with men. 
flirts usually are paid in their own coin. On her return home, Dr. Hosmer fitted up a studio for his daughter, and her first work was to copy from the antique. She then cut Canova's Napoleon in marble for her father, doing all the work that he might especially value the gift. Her next statue was an ideal bust of Hesper, with, says Lydia Maria Child, the face of a lovely maiden gently falling asleep with the sound of distant music. Her hair is gracefully arranged, and intertwined with capsules of the poppy. A star shines on her forehead, and under her breast lies the crescent moon. The swell of the cheeks and the bust is like pure young healthy flesh, and the muscles of the beautiful mouth so delicately cut, it seems like a thing that breathes. She did every stroke of the work with her own small hands, except knocking off the corners of the block of marble. She employed a man to do that. But as he was unused to work for sculptors, she did not venture to have him approach within several inches of the surface she intended to cut. Slight girl as she was, she wielded for eight or ten hours a day, a leaden mallet weighing four and a half pounds. Had it not been for the strength and flexibility of muscle acquired by rowing and other athletic exercises, such arduous labor would have been impossible. After Hesper was completed, she said to her father, I am ready to go to Rome. You shall go, my child, this very autumn, was the response. He would, of course, miss the genial companionship of his only child, but her welfare was to be consulted rather than his own. When autumn came, she rode on horseback to Wayland to say goodbye to Mrs. Child. Shall you never be homesick for your museum parlor in Waterton? Can you be contented in a foreign land? I can be happy anywhere, said Miss Hosmer, with good health and a bit of marble. Late in the fall, Dr. Hosmer and his daughter started for Europe, reaching Rome November 12, 1852. She had greatly desired to study under John Gibson, the leading English sculptor, but he had taken young women into his studio, who in a short time became discouraged or showed themselves afraid of hard work, and he feared that Miss Hosmer might be of the same useless type. When the photographs of Hesper were placed before him by an artist friend of the Hosmers, he looked at them carefully and said, Send the young lady to me, and whatever I know, and I can teach her, she shall learn. He gave Miss Hosmer an upstairs room in his studio, and here for seven years she worked with delight, honored and encouraged by her noble teacher. She wrote to her friends, The dearest wish of my heart is gratified in that I am acknowledged by Gibson as a pupil. He has been resident in Rome thirty-four years, and leads the van. I am greatly in luck. He has just finished the model of the statue of the queen, and as his room is vacant, he permits me to use it, and I am now in his own studio. I have also a little room for work, which was formerly occupied by Canova, and perhaps inspiration may be drawn from the walls. The first work which she copied, to show Gibson whether she had correctness of eye and proper knowledge, was the Venus of Milo. When nearly finished, the iron which supported the clay snapped, and the figure lay spoiled upon the floor. She did not shrink or cry, but immediately went to work cheerfully to shape it over again. This conduct Mr. Gibson greatly admired, and made up his mind to assist her all he could. 
After this she copied the Cupid of Praxiteles and Tasso from the British Museum. Her first original work was Daphne, the beautiful girl whom Apollo loved, and who, rather than accept his addresses, was changed into laurel by the gods. Apollo crowned his head with laurel, and made the flower sacred to himself forever. Next, Miss Hosmer produced Medusa, famed for her beautiful hair, which Minerva turned into serpents, because Neptune loved her. According to Grecian mythology, Perseus made himself immortal by conquering Medusa, whose head he cut off, and the blood dripping from it filled Africa with snakes. Miss Hosmer represented the beautiful maiden when she finds, with horror, that her hair is turning into serpents. Needing a real snake for her work, Miss Hosmer sent a man into the suburbs to bring her one alive. When it was obtained, she chloroformed it till she made a cast, keeping it in plaster for three and a half hours. Then, instead of killing it, like a true-hearted woman as she is, she sent it back into the country, glad to regain its liberty. Daphne and Medusa were both exhibited in Boston the following year, 1853, and were much praised. Mr. Gibson said, The power of imitating the roundness and softness of flesh he had never seen surpassed. Rouch, the great Prussian, whose mausoleum at Charlottenburg, of the beautiful Queen Louise, can never be forgotten, gave Miss Hosmer high praise. Two years later, she completed Enoni, made for Mr. Crow of St. Louis. It is the full-length figure of the beautiful nymph of Mount Ida. The story is a familiar one. Before the birth of Paris, the son of Priam, it was foretold that he, by his imprudence, should cause the destruction of Troy. His father gave orders for him to be put to death, but possibly through the fondness of his mother, he was spared and carried to Mount Ida, where he was brought up by the shepherds, and finally married to Enoni. In time he became known to his family, who forgot the prophecy and cordially received him. For a decision in favor of Venus, he was promised the most beautiful woman in the world for his wife. Forgetting Enoni, he fell in love with the beautiful Helen, already the wife of Menelaus, and persuaded her to fly with him to Troy, to his father's court. War resulted. When he found himself dying of his wounds, he fled to Enoni for help, but died just as he came into her presence. She bathed the body with her tears, and stabbed herself to the heart. A very foolish act for so faithless a man. Miss Hosmer represents her as a beautiful shepherdess, bowed from grief from her desertion. This work was so much liked in America, that the St. Louis Mercantile Library made a liberal offer for some other statue. Accordingly, two years after, Beatrice Senchi was sent. The noble girl lies asleep, the night before her execution, after the terrible torture. It was, says Mrs. Child, the sleep of a body worn out with the wretchedness of the soul. On that innocent face, suffering had left its traces. The arm that had been tossing in the grief tempest had fallen heavily, too weary to change itself into a more easy position. Those large eyes, now so closely veiled by their swollen lids, had evidently wept till the fountain of tears was dry. That lovely mouth was still the open portal of a sigh, which the mastery of sleep had left no time to close. To make this natural, the sculptor caused several models to go to sleep in her studio, 
that she might study them. Gibson is also to have remarked upon seeing this. I can teach her nothing. This was also exhibited in London and in several American cities. For three years she had worked continuously, not leaving Rome even in the hot, unhealthy summers. She had said, I will not be an amateur. I will work as if I had to earn my daily bread. However, as her health seemed somewhat impaired, at her father's earnest wish, she had decided to go to England for the season. Her trunks were packed, and she was ready to start. When, lo, a message came that Dr. Hosmer lost his property, that he could send her no more money, and suggested that she return home at once. At first she seemed overwhelmed. Then she said firmly, I cannot go back and give up my art. Her trunks were at once unpacked and a cheap room rented. Her handsome horse and saddle were sold, and she was now to work indeed as if she earned her daily bread. By a strange freak of human nature, by which we sometimes do our most humorous work when we are saddest, Miss Hosmer produced now in her sorrow her fun-loving puck. It represents a child about four years old, seated on a toadstool which breaks beneath him. The left hand confines a lizard, while the right holds a beetle. The legs are crossed, and the great toe of the right foot turned up. The whole thing is full of merriment. The crown princess of Germany, on seeing it, exclaimed, Oh, Miss Hosmer, you have such a talent for toes. Very true, for this statue, with several copies made from it, brought her $30,000. The Prince of Wales has a copy, the Duke of Hamilton also, and it has gone even to Australia and the West Indies. A companion piece is the Willow the Wisp. About this time, the lovely 16-year-old daughter of Madame Falconet died at Rome, and for her monument in the Catholic Church of San Andrea del Frate, Miss Hosmer produced an exquisite figure resting upon a sarcophagus. Layard, the explorer of Babylon and Nineveh, wrote to Madame Falconet, I scarcely remember to have seen a monument which more completely commanded my sympathy and more deeply interested me. I really know of none of modern days, which I would rather have placed over the remains of one who had been dear to me. Miss Hosmer also modeled a fountain from the story of Hylas. The lower basin contains dolphins spouting jets, while in the upper basin, supported by swans, the youth Hylas stands, surrounded by the nymphs who admire his beauty, and who eventually draw him into the water, where he is drowned. Miss Hosmer returned to America in 1857, five years after her departure. She was still young, twenty-seven, vivacious, hopeful, not wearied from her hard work, and famous. While here, she determined upon the statue of Zenobia, queen of Palmyra, and read much concerning her and her times. She had touched fiction and poetry. Now she would attempt history. She could scarcely have chosen a more heroic or pathetic subject. The brave leader of a brave people, a skillful warrior, marching at the head of her troops, now on foot and now on horseback, beautiful in face and cultured in mind, acquainted with Latin, Greek, Syriac, and Egyptian, finally captured by Aurelian, and borne through the streets of Rome, adorning his triumphal procession. After Miss Hosmer's return to Rome, she worked on Zenobia with energy and enthusiasm, as she molded the clay and then the plaster. 
When brought to this country, it awakened the greatest interest. Crowds gathered to see it. In Chicago, it was exhibited at the sanitary fair in behalf of the soldiers. Whittier said, It very fully expresses my conception of what historical sculpture should be. It tells its whole proud and melancholy story. In looking at it, I felt that the artist had been as truly serving her country while working out her magnificent design abroad as our soldiers in the field and our public officers in their departments. From its exhibition, Miss Hosmer received $5,000. It was purchased by Mr. A. W. Griswold of New York. So great a work was the statue considered in London that some of the papers declared Gibson to be its author. Miss Hosmer at once began suits for libel, and retractions were speedily made. In 1860, Miss Hosmer again visited America to see her father, who was seriously ill. How proud Dr. Hosmer must have been of his gifted daughter, now that her fame was in two hemispheres. Surely he had not spoiled her. She could now spend for him as he had spent for her in her childhood. While here, she received a commission from St. Louis for a bronze portrait statue of Missouri's famous statesman, Thomas Hart Benton. The world wondered if she could bring out of the marble a man with all his strength and dignity, as she had a woman with all her grace and nobility. She visited St. Louis to examine portraits and mementos of Colonel Benton, and then hastened across the ocean to her work. The next year, a photograph of the model was sent to the friends, and the likeness pronounced good. The statue was cast at the great royal foundry at Munich, and in due time shipped to this country. May 27, 1868, it was unveiled in Lafayette Park, in the presence of an immense concourse of people, the daughter, Mrs. John C. Fremont, removing the covering. The statue is ten feet high, and weighs three and one-half tons. It rests on a granite pedestal, ten feet square, the whole being twenty-two feet square. On the west side of the pedestal are the words from Colonel Benton's famous speech on the Pacific Railroad. There is the East, there is India. Both press and people were heartily pleased with this statue, for which Miss Hosmer received $10,000, the whole costing 30000 She was now in the midst of busy and successful work. Orders crowded upon her. Her sleeping fawn, which was exhibited at the Dublin Exhibition in 1865, was sold on the day of opening for $5,000 to Sir Benjamin Guinness. Some discussion having arisen about the sale, he offered 10000 saying that if money could buy it, he would possess it. Miss Hosmer, however, would receive only the 5000 The fawn is represented reclining against the trunk of a tree, partly draped in the spoils of a tiger. A little fawn, with mischievous look, is binding the fawn to the tree with the tiger skin. The newspapers were enthusiastic about the work. The London Times said, In the groups of statues are many works of exquisite beauty, but there is one which at once arrests attention and exhorts admiration. It is a curious fact that amid all the statues in this court, contributed by the natives of lands in which the fine arts are naturalized thousands of years ago, one of the finest should be the production of an American artist. The French Galliani said, 
the gem of the classical school in its nobler style of composition is due to an american lady miss hosmer the london art journal said the works of miss hosmer hiram powers and others we might name have placed america on a level with the best modern sculptors of europe this work was repeated for the prince of wales and for lady ashburton of england not long ago i visited the studio of miss hosmer in the via marguta at rome and saw her numerous works many of them still unfinished here an arm seemed just reaching out from the rough block of marble here a sweet face seemed like pygmalion's statue coming into life in the centre of the studio was the siren fountain executed for lady marion alford a siren sits in the upper basin and sings to the music of her lute three little cupids sit on dolphins and listen to her music for some years miss hosmer has been preparing a golden gateway for an art gallery at ashridge hall england ordered by earl brownlow these gates seventeen feet high are covered with baths reliefs representing the air earth and sea the twelve hours of the night show iola's subduing the winds the descent of the zephyrs iris descending with the dew night rising with the stars the rising moon the hours sleep the dreams descend the falling star phosphor and hesper the hours wake aurora veils the stars and morning more than eighty figures are in the nineteen baths reliefs miss hosmer has done other important works among them a statue of the beautiful queen of naples who was a frequent visitor to the artist's studio and several well-known monuments with her girlish fondness for machinery she has given much thought to mechanics in these later years striving to find like many another the secret of producing perpetual motion she spends much of her time now in england she is still passionately fond of riding the empress of austria who owns more horses than any woman in the world declaring that there was nothing she looked forward to with more interest in rome than to see miss hosmer ride many of the closing years of the sculptor's long life were spent in rome where she had a wide circle of eminent american and english friends among whom were hawthorne thackeray george eliot and the brownings she made several discoveries in her work one of which was a process of hardening limestone so that it resembled marble she also wrote both prose and poetry and would have been as successful an author if she had not given the bulk of her time to her beloved sculpture after her long sojourn in rome she spent several years in england executing important commissions and then turned her face toward america in watertown where she was born she again made her home and here she breathed her last february twenty one nineteen o eight after an illness of three weeks she was in her eighty-seventh year by her long life of earnest work and self-reliant purpose coupled with her high gift she has made for herself an abiding place in the history of art End of section 9